You're in the water loop. Hey everyone, this is Travis with Waterloop. I know a lot of people want to use water efficient fixtures, but they're afraid they won't work as well. Let me tell you about High Sierra Showerheads, which was named Best Showerhead by Popular Science. I just installed one at my house and I was genuinely surprised at the power and coverage of the water. High Sierra Showerheads earn the EPA WaterSense label for water efficiency. They use at least 40% less water than the conventional low-flow showerheads. High Sierra showerheads are constructed out of metal, so there's no plastic involved, they're very durable, and they're naturally antibacterial. One of my favorite things, these showerheads are made in the USA by a small business located in the Sierra Nevada foothills. Get 20% off with promo code WATERLOOP at highsierrashowerheads.com. Order today and start saving water and money with High Sierra. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. Very happy to be with Matthew Hauer. He is a assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at Florida State University, studying a lot of things related to climate change. Uh, Matthew, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so... Uh, your research is really interesting. It's uh, it's more around the, kind of the demographics and the sociology and, and the human impacts. Uh, that's my synopsis. Could you kind of summarize your your focus of your research? Yeah. Uh, so I'm a, I'm a demographer and assistant professor in sociology at Florida State. And um, I, I study sort of how population processes intersect with climate change. And in particular, it's it's as of late at least, it's been around sea level rise primarily, mm. sort of uh, where people are going to go and how many people might move and so on. And that's because sea level rise is predicted to be like the biggest force that makes people change less than heat or other extreme weather, but it's really just that, that rising ocean. Well, it's just, it's the one that has the most direct link to um, migration potential. You know, people live in really hot areas and they live in really wet areas and really cold areas and really dry areas, but no one really lives underwater. <laughs> so um, the, the relationship between sea level rise as opposed to extreme heat or extreme drought is much closer to, to migration than, than the other sort of factors. Yeah. So how, how long have you been really looking at this? When did you start to kind of turn your attention this way? Oh, seven years ago, 2013. Okay, okay. Yeah. Why, why, why does it interest you so much? Um, <laughs> it was just kind of happenstance. Um, I was at the University of Georgia uh, at the Carl Vinson Institute of Government, and there was somebody in the environmental planning division there who had landed a grant to do some sea level rise planning in coastal Georgia, and he had a, some really good. Uh, foresight in terms of thinking about, you know, what you would need to actually do an, an impact assessment. And, and, you know, this is seven, eight years ago when he when he got the grant. And he kind of turned to me because he had some modeling that he didn't really know how to do. Uh, he was an ecologist. Um, and so I, I got pulled into this grant and it was a very deep rabbit hole that just <laughs> seemed to, to keep going. I ended up writing a dissertation on it. Um, and it's sort of where all of my research is sort of headed. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, 
so this idea of, of demographic projections around migration because of sea level rise. Um, so you've really looked at the U.S., the kind of the continental U.S., and and what that yeah. what that all means. Um, what what do we what are the forecasts for sea level rise? You know, what's kind of the latest? Uh, in terms of what exactly? Like, it's always interesting to me how much of the coastline is going to be end up being underwater. You know, is it going to be like, oh, it's really just that first mile? Is it going to come a lot further inland? Um, you know. I know that there's also time frames we're talking about here, but yeah, just kind of what's the what's the latest scientific projections around that? So by 2100, the projections show that there will be somewhere between uh, one and two meters by the end of the century. So you're looking at somewhere around three to six feet. Mm. Um, there's the possibility of upwards of nine feet by 2100. But those are, um, you know, they like to call those tail risks. There are lower probability that that can occur. Hmm. The low end bounds used to be right around one feet. But at this point, uh, it seems really unlikely. Although, who knows, right, with the way that emissions are going right now, it's possible that I guess one foot is still within the, the probability. But the general consensus seems to be around three to six feet. Okay. And I'm always curious, you know, does that mean that if you are at just that elevation that the ocean is going to come and impact you? Or is it, I'm sure it's more complicated than that, but any, any sense of how that plays out, you know? Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's way more complicated than that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you have, you have to be connected to the ocean in some way as well. So if you're in a coastal area that is lower at an elevation than say six feet, um, you would assume then that, or, or hopefully you have some sort of protection uh, to prevent you from actually experiencing any sort of impacts. And I'll also emphasize too that, that those numbers are basically for where the average high tide is mm. uh, in a given year. So as an average implies, some tides are higher and some tides are lower. So you might end up with infrequent flooding uh, at a higher elevation or earlier in time. Mm. So if we have six feet by 2100 and you're at seven feet of elevation, uh, you might infrequently flood by the end of the century. If you're at four feet in elevation, though, you'll infrequently flood much sooner, mm. right? We don't need that full amount of rise by the end of the century before you start seeing some kind of um, tidal flooding. So there's a, and then you have, right, the effects are not just like, oh, my, my yard floods. Like if your neighbor floods as well, you're going to be in trouble uh, because that's going to affect maybe your road that you, that you have to live on or it might affect, um, you know, uh, property values in your neighborhood and so on. So um, who's actually affected is a bit broader than just, you know, sort of uh, rising the water a certain amount and then drawing a line and saying, well, everybody below this line you're in trouble and everybody above this line, you're okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting seeing what's already happening in places like Miami, especially Miami beach and like the, uh, the Hampton roads area of Virginia, um, where they're, they're really, that ocean is starting to move in. Right. Um, so the idea of coastal migration, uh, what are you, what are you looking at? You're kind of trying to forecast that as the sea level rises, people are going to start moving, 
and they're going to start moving inland. And this is maybe the numbers of people that will do that on this type of time scale. What's the, what is it that you're really studying? Yeah. I mean, so displacement implies a destination. Hmm. So you, you kind of, you, you can't just migrate to nowhere. You have to migrate somewhere. Um, and so if people's houses flood out and they have to move, where, where do they end up going? So this, this started again, this research way back in 2013, 2014, we were working with a, a mayor um, and we showed him some numbers in, in Georgia, coastal Georgia, about his, his, uh, his little city, his little coastal town. And, you know, he kind of turned and he said, well, where are these people going to go then? Mm -hmm. And somebody in the room said, I don't know, 20 miles inland. And I thought, you know, maybe that's true. Maybe it's not true. I, I don't, I didn't know the answer at the time now. And so I started doing, I started doing a lot of modeling to try and figure it out. So when it comes to migration, we know, um, we know quite a bit. We, we don't know as much as we could know because of data limitations, but we know quite a bit. We know that for first off, people don't like to move. Mm. Yeah. Most people don't want to move. Sure. Their choice is to not move. After and we call that the immobility paradox. Mm. So when forced to move, most people will say, I don't want to move. Um they, after that they like when they like living where they are, it's their home, it's their house, it's their job, it's it's everything. Plus yeah. plus you just gotta pack up all your stuff, which is a pain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's there's a lot of friction, right, yeah. that might prevent somebody from moving to kind of think about it like that. Well, if people do move, they tend to move relatively short distances. First off, um, people generally don't move very far. So even if you think about your own personal moves, you know, a lot of people will move across town, for instance. Mm -hmm. And then after that, people tend to move where they can have enhanced um, uh, economic and social capital. So they're moving where the jobs are. They're moving for school or education. They're moving for uh, opening businesses and so on. So why anybody moves from what, why, first off, why anybody moves? And second off, why anybody moves for, um, um, in terms of picking a destination, it generally is that they're moving for economic reasons, socio-capital reasons. They're re moving for friends and family. Mm -hmm. um, and it tends to be relatively short distance. So... so it's that, oh, go ahead. that idea that they're just going to pick up and all go 20 miles inland. That's not, that's not uh, the correct logic because they're going to look for places that deliver on those other areas that you talked about, where they can get a new job, where their family might already be, or you know, maybe even a place where they've always thought about living. It's going to be much more varied, right? Yeah, and, and some people will pick up and move 20 miles inland. Mm. Um, some people will pick up and move across the country, you know. Um, we're, we're talking about a lot of people that are going to make these decisions. So the, the, the range of possibilities is very wide. So when you, when you aggregate it all up, though, uh, in terms of sea level rise, what you find is that sort of the, the inland major cities nearby to sea level rise hotspots, like where it's particularly bad, tend to be the big uh, receiver communities. So these are places like Orlando, Florida, or Atlanta, Georgia, or Austin, Texas. Um, places like that that are, I wouldn't say that they're coastal, 
but they're not also not particularly far from the beach. They're just, you know, a two or three hour drive, maybe at the most from from the ocean. So those ones are the ones where they're they're relatively safe. They're nearby and they have strong um, economies. Right. Well, I mean, up until yeah. <laughs> knows we're about to move into. But um, up until then, they were, you know, pretty robust growing economies as opposed to like you know, um, Chicago or something like that, where some people will move there, just it's generally much further. So you have a smaller, a smaller stream of people. Yeah, sure. So have I think you might have you've done modeling or projections or looked at uh, what the potential could be based on this sea level rise, making these communities uninhabitable, meaning this many number of people need to move. What does that what does that picture look like? So in, in the U.S., if we have six feet of sea level rise, uh, which is on the high end, uh, there's as many as 13 million people in the United States that would be essentially permanently underwater. Wow. Uh, if we have three feet of sea level rise, we're looking at something more like um, four or five million. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're looking at you know a lot of people that would be on the move by the end of the century. Um, and to put those numbers in perspective, what we call the Great Migration in the United States is about 10 million people, 10 to 15, mm-hmm. and that was uh, at the end of or in the uh, middle of the 20th century, where a lot of people fled the the South into the industrialized North in California. Um, this would be on par with that level of movement, and we call that the Great Migration. So we're talking about a lot of people, about. Um, about half of, of all the people that would be impacted would be Florida residents. Mm. So Florida has a huge coastline. It's very low lying. It's rapidly growing. Um, so that really shouldn't be a, a, a much of a surprise. Um, California and Louisiana both have over a million people that would also uh, have to move. Um, California is very populous. Louisiana, not so much. Mm-hmm. So the fact that Louisiana would be the the second or third most impacted state, despite its size, tells you how relatively how um, at risk it would be. Yeah, I'm curious. Um, I'm curious about some of these specific places. You know, Florida, obviously, very very prone. Um, I've always I've also always wondered about you know L.A. and Southern California and what the scenario is there. That's so densely populated, so many people. Um, but I'm not I'm not totally familiar with the you know, how above sea level they are and what the projections are. Yeah, I mean, they're a bit rockier, right? I mean, the California coastline is, is considerably, has considerable more elevation than uh, South Florida, the coastline in most of Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, there, there's not a place that you would call in, in say, Tampa or, or Miami, you know, blank hills the way that you have in California, you have Hollywood Hills, mm-hmm. which are right there. Mm-hmm. Um, so you just... The, the coastline is just so much flatter in deltaic regions or really low-lying coastal areas. So, you know, Louisiana is a deltaic region. Um, it's just very, very low-lying. You have a lot of land that's at a very low elevation. In California, the elevation profile is much more aggressive. Mm. So, like in, in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, the south part of the, the Bay Area is, is more at risk than, say, San Francisco proper. Because San Francisco is known for having tons of hills, so it's got a lot of elevation. Yeah. Um, and then you know you have you have a trade-off between areas that are densely populated uh, and and might have a bit more elevation profile, so you get a lot of people. So New York City comes into there. 
New York City's got a lot of people, so naturally there's going to be a lot of people at risk because you're looking at you know millions of people in, in New York City. More rural areas um, or, or more low-lying areas that are more rural might have a smaller total number of people but would have a larger percentage of their population that would be impacted. So, um, you know, the Florida Keys only has 100,000 people in it. Um, you're looking at about 90% of the Florida Keys being underwater with six feet of sea level rise. Mm. So you get 90,000 people essentially that would be at risk, which is lower than what you find in Manhattan. But in Manhattan, you're looking at about 100,000 people out of, you know, a couple million that are in the county. And that, so, and then, you know, New York City could always put in some type of really advanced mitigation, right, with seawalls and kind of take that engineering approach to try to protect themselves. I don't see that happening in the Keys, right? They're just, that's just not practical. Yeah, or the Outer Banks, yeah. where there just isn't, there just isn't enough capital in those areas to be able to deploy that infrastructure. At least I don't think that there's going to be. Yeah. There could be. Yeah. Um, I just don't think that there's going to be enough capital in those areas. Yeah, and I, I don't know if I mentioned to you before, I live in North Carolina, in Wilmington, North Carolina, so below the Outer Banks, but right on the ocean. I'm probably yeah. I'm probably like two or three miles from the ocean uh, in a straight line right now. Uh, so very interesting stuff. Um, so you mentioned the areas where these people will migrate or those cities that are usually that are a couple hours inland, you know, Atlanta, Orlando, maybe if the Outer Banks people have to leave, they're going into Raleigh, um, mm -hmm, you know, exactly. all that, all that kind of thing. And so what, what impact will that have? Are those cities pretty much able to absorb that mic that migration or, you know, does it come with some challenges? Yeah, it comes with challenges. Um, you know, some cities will easily be able to incorporate uh, an inflow of people. Other cities aren't going to be as well positioned. Or to put another way, um, I don't know of any, I, or at least up until I started doing this work, I didn't know of anybody that had incorporated climate change and displacement into their long-range strategic planning. Mm. So, um, you know, so you end up, planning for a given amount of people. And so that's how many roads you need and how much water reservoirs you need and, and so on, right? How much, what, what you actually need for your, your actual infrastructure, but they hadn't accounted for an additional amount, which would be essentially people migrating in because of, in this case, just sea level rise, let alone other climate effects. Mm -hmm. So in those cases, right, you're sort of at least now they're in better position since people are talking about it more. But at the time when I started doing this work, there was very little planning around um, climate scenarios within migration. Hmm. And out migration is a bit more, you know, people on the coastline are, have been paying attention for uh, for a number of years. Like I said, I was work, we were working on a, um, a climate change uh, adaptation plan in coastal Georgia seven years ago. Um, so there's... There's some cities will be better positioned than others. Um, I know in, in the, uh, the Great Lakes region, you have a lot of cities that are hoping to revitalize and capture this. They want to be destination cities. They see this as being, um, you know, really good for, for business, good for their communities. If they, if they welcome a lot of people, it's good revitalization. Others might have an anti-growth mindset where there's already too many people. Um, and so maybe they don't want to be as an attractive destination or they're dealing with other stressors that they just don't know how to handle. And then you throw in additional population growth on top of that can make it really difficult. Yeah. 
Um, are any of those bigger metro areas you mentioned starting to think about this then in their, in their planning? Um, I haven't been in contact with anybody directly, uh, but I've, I've heard sort of offhand rumors about um, planning for it, or at least thinking through scenarios, what you would do. Gotcha. Yeah. Or, or sort of like somebody picks up their phone and they're like, Matt, what do you think about you know, more people moving to this state? Well, I mean, yeah, there's a possibility of that happening. Like, I'm getting a lot of questions about this. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, that's probably going to happen. Here's the paper. You can look at the results. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the areas you mentioned that I'm always fascinated by for a variety of reasons is coastal Louisiana, you know, uh, and I think you've done some, some work really looking at that that area and migration. And I think the idea that even though the coastline has been disappearing and wetlands have been disappearing and there's a lot of impacts to, to people there that they're not really, uh, you know, doing migrations inland at this point, they're kind of, they're kind of hanging in that area. I mean, this is aside from Katrina and people leaving after that, but what's the, uh, what's the deal with, uh, coastal Louisiana? Yeah. So, um, so this is a, I wrote that paper in regards to people uh, arguing that maybe people will just move 20 miles inland, right? That they won't go very far. So it's, it's hard to, you know, when you think about sea level rise, it's, it's mostly a prospective risk, meaning that it's, it's mostly in the future. There's not a lot of sea level rise that happened retrospectively. But Louisiana is a great example for that. You know, they, due to a host of both uh, natural and anthropogenic, so natural and man-made activities, Louisiana has lost about 25% of its coastal land area since the 1930s. Oof. And that's the same physical process that we would expect sea level rise to do, that you lose coastal land area. Um, so it, it seemed like a really great natural experiment. Do we find that people in coastal Louisiana have, in fact, moved more landward? Um and so we made, I made some estimates, we, we looked at it, and we didn't find that to be the case. We, we found that most areas did not experience any actual landward movement of their populations within those communities. Mm -hmm. So if people are moving, they're moving to other nearby counties as opposed to within their county. So will somebody just sort of pick up and move across the street? Some people will, but it doesn't seem likely that the bulk of people will actually do that. Mm. And you being in kind of sociology, uh, understanding the reasons people don't like to move, and then considering, you know, how much people I think down in coastal Louisiana really, I mean, that's their culture, right? That that place mm -hmm. is is who they are. And so they, they probably have an even stronger resistance to leaving, right? I mean, is that exactly is that right? Yeah, the stickiness of place is, is one of the concepts, right? Yeah. That you're, you get... You're, you love it. You're just kind of stuck to it. It's, it's a cultural effect as well. You, you can't envision yourself moving some, living somewhere else. Yeah. So a lot of people, a lot of places have that sort of thing where they say, no, I, I could never live anywhere besides New York, or I could, live, I could never live anywhere besides California, or I could never live anywhere besides New Orleans. And so it's the same kind of concept. Yeah, yeah. Uh, something else that I, I saw when I was reading through your different papers was about Japan. Uh, and, the, mm -hmm. and the tsunami, and maybe this isn't climate change related necessarily, but could you explain to me what, what you looked at there? Because it definitely sounded very interesting. Yeah, so, um, so 
when when we're doing these types of climate models, uh, we we don't we have to look at sort of these historic analogs to make these these hypotheses. Like in the case of Louisiana, let's look at what has happened historically. Do people actually move? Uh, just you know, right, just sort of following the coastline inland, and it turned out they didn't. Well, how do we know where people actually move to? Uh, do they move to similar or different destinations because of, of of a climate shock or an environmental impact when they're displaced? So work on on Hurricane Katrina suggested that people were moving to different locations. That it's it's rather unpredictable in terms of where people move, or at least. This, the what they call the migration system. So all the possible combinations of where people could move to is different after Hurricane Katrina than it was before. Well, um, you have two different types of migrants after an environmental event. You have those that uh, are evacuees. So they're just getting out of the way as, as fast as they can. They're probably going to be moving back. But then you have those who are permanently displaced where they, there's no coming back, they move, and they're, they're essentially in a new location permanently. In the U.S., we don't have a lot of good migration data at the end of the day. The best we have, it comes from the IRS, where you file your tax return in one area, and you file it in another area the next year, and the IRS would consider you to be a migrant. But there's no, after Katrina, everybody got lumped, lumped in together, right? We don't have any sort of way of of distinguishing between those who were uh, who just moved real quickly and were looking to move back versus those who were like, I'm totally done, I'm, I'll move to a new location. Well, in Japan, after uh, the, the, uh, the uh, earthquake and tsunami in 2011 that led to the, the Fukushima nuclear disaster, they set up a separate system to capture those and register people who were uh, just evacuees in their own data collection system, and then they have a population register as well, so you register your location with the government in a different one. So now we have those who registered their location as a different place, uh, so they're permanently migrants, right? They moved, I'm in Fukushima Prefecture now, I'm now in Tokyo, I'm not moving back. And then those who were impermanently relocated, hmm. where they were still counted in Fukushima Prefecture. So we have two universes of migrants, and evacuees. And when you compare them, it turns out that the, the regular migrants went to the exact same locations in the exact same proportions after the earthquake and tsunami than they did beforehand. Wow. Very predictably. But the evacuees were not. They were hard to predict. They tended to move really short distance, just r right within the immediately surrounding prefectures from, from Fukushima. And a prefecture is a as a bit is bigger than a county, but smaller than a state. Gotcha. So, in the case of sea level rise or or any what we would call a slow onset um, environmental change, so this is what we would call like a drought, for instance, mm. or sea level rise. A rapid onset would be something like a, a hurricane or or an earthquake, right? Something that happens real quick. In the case of sea level rise, if we exclude the storms from there, we're most likely to see permanent migrants as opposed to evacuees. So. If we were to use what happened in, in Fukushima as an example, permanent migrants from sea level rise are likely to follow the same sort of pathways that they had beforehand, whereas if we had storms, it would become more unpredictable. So I, I think what happened after Katrina and some of the other hurricanes is you get this co-mingling of this data, these streams, and so you can't parse them apart, and it looks like it's different when, in fact, you have two separate 
uh, pathways that people are taking. Wow, fascinating stuff. I wonder, uh, as you know, hurricanes kind of keep intensifying with climate change and and hitting the coast. Um, you know how much that might drive migration and people to just be like, you know what, I'm out of here. I'm moving inland. I'm not dealing with this anymore. Yeah, you saw some of that with Katrina, but Florida, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Where I am in North Carolina, we're we're right uh, right in Hurricane Alley, and we get hit a lot. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see. Or maybe you've you've looked at that a little bit. And um, well, the the thing with hurricanes is that you can always rebuild afterwards. Yeah, yeah. But with sea level rise, it's hard to rebuild afterwards. Gotcha. Right. There's so evacuation implies going back, mm, mm. whereas migration doesn't necessarily. So even with hurricanes, you know, you can always there, there can be a long time between getting struck, even if there's more hurricanes in the future or even stronger hurricanes in the future. You could still go very long stretches of time without getting hit. You know, um, um, you know, even in Louisiana, New Orleans hasn't been hit by a major hurricane since Hurricane Katrina. That's 15 years now. Right. almost. Uh, in between, so that's a, that's a long time for people to come back and rebuild. Sure, but if we're talking about like literally the the erosion of your coastline, it's a it's a bit more of a permanent change. Yeah, there's not much to rebuild. Yeah, that makes a makes a ton of sense. Ton of sense. Uh, a couple other areas of your research that are things I hadn't seen before at all. Uh, as this idea of the climate change impacts on human mortality. Um, and uh, there was also some kind of European projections involved with that. Uh, could you talk about that research? Yeah. So demography is the study of populations and there's three possible ways any population can change. They're sort of ironclad, uh, uh, rules. You can only add people to a population because they've been born. You can only take them away from a population because they die. And in between birth and death, people move around, and that's that's migration. So, um, so I, I do study all three of those population processes, and I think about how they change in relation, or how they might change in relation to climate change. And so, most of my work has been on on migration, but I've been trying to quantify sort of what climate change will do toward to mortality. Mm. Uh, and so a group of, of European scholars published this really great paper a few years ago where they tr- where they tried to quantify uh, how many people climate change will kill in Europe by the end of the century. And they, they used aggregate numbers. So they I can't remember the exact number. I want to say it was like 500,000 people a year by the end of the century. But I, I don't know how to put that number in perspective. Mm. Mm. I don't know. Is that a lot of people? Is that not a lot of people? Like how much does heart disease kill? Um I I just don't know. And and you run into when you start looking at very large numbers like that, it's hard to put them in in context, right? One number is a tragedy. One death is a tragedy. A million deaths is a statistic. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to even relate what that means. But, you know, half a million people. But you can translate that into life expectancy, in which case, how long will that affect your average lifespan then? And, and in Europe, for some European countries, that translates into a one-year reduction in life expectancy. Wow. So some Europeans will live one year less than they would have otherwise simply because of climate change. And this is climate extremes in that case, not even just overall 
shifts. This would be like really extreme heat waves that are happening and so on. That's what I was going to ask is kind of, you know, dying. How is climate change causing mortality? Is it from the extreme events? Uh, is it other factors also like there being less food or just the whole system being strained and that impacting healthcare or yeah. What are, what are some of the factors that if you could build on that, that'd be great. How, how are people going to be dying more frequently from climate change? So the Euro the European model that they were using was entire. Well, what drove the effect almost entirely was extreme heat. Mm. Um, so heat waves running through, uh, you know, and, and who's most likely to experience heat stroke and, and heat fatigue are the elderly and the youngest, very young children. Um, so you have these sort of compounding factors where you have the global population is aging in almost every country. And at the same time, you have more frequent extreme heat waves. Uh, and so if you have the right adaptive infrastructure in place, it, it doesn't have as much of an effect. So um, you know, a heat wave in, in Chicago is very different from a heat wave in Florida. In, in Florida, you know, you kind of know how to handle extreme heat. The, the infrastructure is sort of built around it. In other places, in other parts of the world, or even in the U.S., they're not as well equipped to handle um, extreme heat. Or even just individual practices around, um, you know, living in a very hot environment. Uh, you know, when I walk across campus in Florida, I always try and walk in the shaded parts of campus. Even even as I'm walking, I'll deviate my path to try and get some shade. Um, you know, up north, it's probably the exact opposite because it's a lot colder. You want to walk in the sun, right, right to stay warm. So those sort of like little individual ad adaptive behaviors are things that uh, you have in warmer cli climates that you might not have in, in colder. So if you have more more heat, more heat events, more heat waves in these more northern latitudes, you might have more people who just simply aren't adapted uh, to those to those events. They just don't know what to do. Like a great example, I had a I had a boss who was at Cornell for 30 years, uh, and he, he told me this story one time where he was building a snow fence. For his yard getting ready for winter and i had no clue what a snow fence was i didn't even i had i had to google it i was like what yeah. is this i wouldn't know what to do i don't have the adaptive capacity to survive a winter in upstate new york um, and conversely i'm not sure that he would have the adaptive capacity to survive an extreme florida summer as well um so yeah, kind of goes both ways. No, absolutely. I, I I mean, it gets pretty hot and humid here in Wilmington, North Carolina. I know, like if I'm doing something, all right. If I walk too fast, I'm going to start sweating too much, and I'm going to sweat up these clothes. Let me dial down my speed a little bit, right? Find the shade, all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, in Europe, I mean, I think they had some pretty serious heat waves last summer that were really, really brutal and unprecedented, and that's just kind of a harbinger of things to come for sure. Um, exactly. On the other end of the life spectrum, not the migration, not the mortality, but birth and fertility, uh, you've also looked at that. Uh, talk about that, please. So I'm, I'm starting to look through how climate change will affect fertility. And I'm setting, I had, to, I had to come up with a method to be able to estimate fertility in areas where we don't necessarily have the data mm -hmm. or going forward. So it, for me, it's very emergent. Mm. Um, and climate Climate change will have a with the, the very uh, nascent literature on climate and fertility. The links tend to be through um, how it might affect female employment um, or just general physiological effects around fertility. 
Um, you know, in extreme heat waves, that's when women are, are most likely to miscarry or they're more likely to miscarry than when it's not, um, lower birth weights and so on. So there's a lot of other factors that might impact uh, fertility decision making with regards to, to climate change. I just haven't had a chance to move in there yet. Most of my work has been on migration, a little bit on mortality, and I'm setting the pieces in to really look at fertility. All right. Well, we can we can catch up in uh, six months or a year down the road when you when you have uh, some interesting stuff to share on that front. It's it's uh, it's very intriguing topic for sure. Um, yeah. I, I guess as climate change just gets actually more and more attention all the time, uh, people are realizing this is the challenge of our of our lifetime. That there's a lot more interest in these kind of issues around migration, mortality, and so forth, huh? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. What about? Well, maybe it's not as big of a challenge as we have right yeah, now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Coronavirus for sure. This is just a moment in time. Um, but what about what about students? You know, you're you're there at a university, and uh, what do you see out of them, and just their interest and aptitude for this topic? Yeah, I mean, I see a lot of interest. Um, the students seem to be very engaged with it, very very interested in the topic. My graduate students all seem very interested as well. Most of them don't know as much about it. Most of my undergraduates don't, except for what they read in the news. And then when we start getting into the nitty gritty, they're all, they, it, it's just like their eyes just get completely open. Mm. Um, so it's, it, I think it's really encouraging. Uh, I, I don't know if I would have felt the same if I was, if I was doing climate change research about a decade ago, mm. but now it just seems to be more like, yeah, we should do something. What do we do? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What do we do? <laughs> and and then you're also in the state of Florida, right? Which with the sea level mm -hmm. sea level rise issue, I mean, you guys are the kind of the, the worst case scenario, if you will. And so all those municipalities and counties and stuff around the around the coast, I know, are are thinking heavily about this and dealing with it. Uh, I I had a chance to talk to the chief sustainability officer for the city of Miami. Uh, just about kind of the measures they're taking. So it's, you just kind of are at a, a hot spot for sure. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, uh, I appreciate the time and the, and the, uh, and the information a lot. And like I said, um, I look forward to staying in touch and, and hearing about future research, uh, in this area. So thanks a lot, Matthew. Yeah. Thanks. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. The Waterloop Podcast is sponsored by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart, stylish choice for conserving water, energy, and money while enjoying an invigorating shower. Use promo code WATERLOOP for 20% off at highsierrashowerheads.com. You're in the Waterloop. You're in the Waterloop.